0: Hello and welcome to the podcast for people with a propensity for plants or On The Ledge for short. I'm your host, Jane Perrone. And in this week's show, we're talking about predators on your plants. Yes, biological controls. Plus, I'll be answering a question about a prickly pear that needs support. And we have our youngest ever meet the listener. You are going to love her. I've just discovered that I'm number one on the Russian home and garden chart. So... Privet to any Russian listeners out there. Thanks to Juniper and Jessica, both became legends in the last few days. And Reker, who became a crazy plant person. Do check the show notes for details of how to become a patron of the show or make a one-off donation via co-fi.com. It is simple, easy and very, very beneficial for On The Ledge. Because while this show is free to listen to, it isn't free to make. From podcast hosting fees to equipment to the work of my assistant Kelly and transcribing the podcast. All of these things have to be paid for through advertising and crowdfunding. And that is where Patreon comes in. So support the show. If you become a legend or a super fan level, then you get to unlock exclusive episodes of the show and you get a mail out every December and there's going to be a patrons only zoom coming up once I reach 300 patrons and I'm only 10 away from that so it's getting close so sign up now when you start bringing house plants into your home it is inevitable that there will be some livestock that either comes in with the plants or arrives on your plants in due course. Whether it's mealybugs, those fluffy white terrors of the cacti and succulent world, spider mites, those invisible assassins of your maranta group plants, or fungus gnats, the floaty but oh-so-annoying flies that lay their eggs in your compost All of these pests will, in their own unique way, drive you into the ground. So it's not surprising that many of us have been turning to biological controls. We're trying to avoid using synthetic chemicals in lots of areas of our lives, and houseplant care is no exception. But it's very confusing. From what to buy to how to apply, this is one of those topics that really needs looking at. And so I got two experts to answer all of your questions about biological controls and the interview was such a good one that I've decided to split it across two episodes. In this episode we'll hear about what biological controls actually are, why it's vital that you read the label and how to get the best out of biological controls for fungus gnats aka scarred flies.
1: I'm Tessa. I own Ladybird Plant Care and sell bugs that eat the bugs you don't want on your plants.
2: So, my name's Andy Brown. I'm the managing director of Andermat UK, who are a global manufacturer. retailer of biological control products.
0: Lots of listeners have been desperate for us to talk about this topic in the show because it seems increasingly popular, the idea of biological controls, that we can avoid using chemical sprays and instead rely on a small tiny army of creatures to sort out our problems. But I'm not sure that all of us have quite got a handle on what the phrase biological control actually means does one of you want to start off maybe Andy just give us a a definition as closely as you can of what biological controls actually are
2: yes certainly as you say it's it, it can be complicated and one of those complications is because there is no one definition of what biological control is so depending on where you are in the world um, you come across terms like um, natural or found in nature or living organisms or chemically identical. Um, but as a, as a general uh, rule, it's uh, using a natural solution to control a pest or disease um, problem. And to, to get around this issue of there not being one definition there's a trade association called the ibma the biocontrol manufacturers association and they've come up with this term of bioprotection as a way of sort of an um, umbrella term for uh, biological uh, control and and they talk about uh, biological control as originating from nature and then either being sourced from nature or nature identical if it's synthesized
0: tessa when you're sort of marketing your products do you find that customers need a bit of education about what they're actually buying um is is that starting to filter through to the
1: growing community do you think yes i think it is i think people tend to hear about it from someone else or often from a site or a forum and a lot of the time they'll pick on the most popular or well-known um predators like ladybirds for example and they'll just think that ladybirds are going to answer all of their problems. I think the main education piece is around the fact that there's a, there's an ideal predator for each pest and there's ideal conditions for that, that predator. Um, if you want to get it right, if you want it to do its job, then you need to be using the right thing and you need to be using it at the right time of the year or in the right light and heat conditions for it to work effectively and also giving people the understanding that it's not a bug spray, so you can't just liberally throw it around and it's just going to work. Um, that they're live creatures, and we have to give them some encouragement and make sure that we're giving them the right conditions for them to do their job.
0: Yeah, I mean it's the old thing about read the label, isn't it? And I think uh, with biological controls, it is. It's really vital because I know lots of people who, you know, are thinking about in the garden people who spend money buying the nematodes that work on, say, vine weevil and then say, oh, it didn't work, and you sort of question them further and it turns out that they've not really applied them when the soil's at the right temperature or in the right way and lo and behold, it hasn't worked. So, yeah, it's it's the old thing of read the label, isn't it? It
1: is, and I think um, it's really important to identify that you really have got to go through what pest you've got in the first place and that you know... Therefore, what predator you need and the conditions and the way in which to apply them before you purchase them as well, because once you've got them, there's nothing you can do; you can't send them back they're live let's just go
0: through some of the main products that you can get for the the pests that house plant growers will be encountering. I guess the one that I get the most questions about are fungus gnats, and often it's people who think they've got fruit flies and don't realize that they're actually a completely different species of fly that is affecting their plants. I think that's the one that most people ask about. And back a couple of years ago, right at the start of my podcast, I did an episode on fungus gnats. And back then, I think the main biological control that was being recommended was the nematodes. I've forgotten the species name, (laughs) but now mites seem to be on the agenda as well. Can we just talk a little about, a bit about what the fungus gnat options are for biological control?
2: The fungus gnats is actually the, the larvae that cause the damage to, to the plants. Um, the larvae live in the soil, in, in, in damp soil is what they like, which is um, what the plant likes. So if you're keeping the soil nice and moist for your plants, you're also creating an environment that the larvae would like. Um, but it's often the adults that people see more, so the actual flying Adult and they're more more of a nuisance than actually causing damage to your plants, and they're just a, a nuisance flying around you in your house, and um, and yet by far the, the most commonly used biological control products um, for home use for control of fungus gnats or scarab fly is um, is nematodes and it's the nematode species Steinernema feltii and it's in a, a number of, of different products. And this is put onto the soil in in water to control the larval stage.
0: It really does work. I mean, I use that treatment sort of twice a year on my house plants. I think one of the things that people people want with pests is they want there to be a silver bullet that they're going to put do something and it's going to fix the problem forever, <laughs> uh, which is not really how how pests work or how biological controls work but it certainly is effective that I find the nematode uh, treatment for for the fungus gnats but you do have to do it a couple of times a year for it to be effective is there anything you can do to really get the best out of your out of your nematodes when once you have applied them in terms of keeping them going as long as possible while there's still fungus gnats around I imagine they need some kind of moisture level in the
1: soil to work that's a question we get asked a lot is How moist does the soil need to be? How wet does the soil need to be? I like to keep my plants really dry. I, you know, that kind of question. And a really good test that I was told is that you don't have to actually do it. But imagine if you squeezed that pot, you would want a couple of drops to come out the bottom. So you wouldn't want it to be dripping and you don't want it to be dry, that no water would come out of that pot if you squeezed it. But you just want it so that through the holes in the bottom of the pot, a couple of drops would come out. Okay, that's a good that's a really useful guide
0: because uh it yeah, that's a re- that's a question that has crossed my mind many times. um let's just mention the other. Uh, biological control for scarred flight. I can't really say this word. Hypoaspis, is that right, mites?
1: Aspis, yeah. So they. Um, I find that they're really good for people that are gr- using a growing material that's not going to be suitable for nematodes. So for example, orchids in bark, you can't really use nematodes because there's nothing for them to live in. And they're more expensive, so some people won't want to use those. They're really good because they will eat away and get rid of the larvae and then they can last up to 60 days without being fed. So they do the job and they fill their tummies and then they are around for that period of time afterwards, which therefore offers that level of protection that nematodes won't because they'll, they'll stop working as soon as there's no more prey for them to eat.
0: I mean, I think we're all a bit scared of the idea of mites because of spider mites. But obviously, as I've, we've discussed in, in the, on the podcast before, there are many, many species of mites. And not all of them are going to be uh, uh, damaging your plants. And indeed, these ones are doing, doing good in destroying fungus gnats. There's loads of great mites. Yeah. Uh, but Which brings us on to spider mites. Is there a good biological control for spider mites? Please, God, let there be a good, <laughs> good control. Yeah,
1: there's, there's a couple of really good controls for spider mites. Um, if you're, if you're looking to p- prevent spider mites, so you know that you get spider mites, say, when it's warm in your, in your house plants or in your glass house, you know that come like mid May, you start to see spider mite, then you can introduce the slow release product, which is the Andersoni sachets, and they, can tolerate um, temperatures a bit cooler than the spider mite, so they kind of can be there ready to pounce on them as soon as they crawl out from wherever they've been hiding. And because they're in the slow-release sachets, they'll, they'll crawl out over a period of four to six weeks and offer you that protection. They'll also feed on uh, small amounts of sap and spores, so they can... Can last while there's no spider mite present. But along a lot of the time, you, as much as you try, you're going to have spider mite at a higher level. Um, and you've kind of got a beginnings of an infestation as soon as you see any webbing, then you want to be getting the phytosilus, which is just amazing. The phytosilus mites are way faster than the spider mites, so they can overcome their prey very effectively they also tolerate lower temperatures and higher moisture levels so if you're introducing the phytosilus and spraying the plant with water then you're you're just doing the double whammy and you're getting rid of them
0: I've heard people say, oh, well, you know, now that we're only, that nurseries are mainly using biological controls to control pests such as spider mite, we all need to expect that when we buy a plant, there's a good chance there's going to be a few spider mites on it. Because actually, in order to, for biological controls to work, there need to be a, a sort of a base." So a low base level of pests around. Is that true or is that just something that plant sellers say?
2: <laughs> I think there's a, a, a level of education there for, for everyone in, in the supply chain. It's It's true we're moving away from using chemical products that annihilate everything and so destroy anything living on the plant, good or bad. And I'd take there being a few spider mites on a plant I bought as a as a good thing, as a sign that that plant hasn't been treated with a harsh chemical.
0: That's a really good point, actually. And I think that's something that many new houseplant owners have to, got to get to grips with, that actually... Well, for a start, there's already lots of tiny creatures in your house anyway. But by bringing plants in, you're inevitably bringing living things with living things on them. And um, that's just something we have to get used to. And you're not going to be able to have a plant that's completely free of any of any creatures. Because, uh, as you say, the only way to do that is by using a lot of chemicals, which hopefully we're realising aren't so great. Um somebody wanted to know if there are advantages and disadvantages to biological control compared to conventional methods i mean obviously we've touched on this already in terms of some of these chemical sprays are are not that great Uh, what are the sort of pros and cons obviously you're going to be saying biological controls are great but are there any disadvantages of using biological controls Uh, yeah
2: and i think we've we've touched on it and tess was saying um earlier there's a level of um education and knowledge um and you have to understand what it is you're trying to target and how to get the best out of the product you're using because you're dealing with living organisms they can be less forgiving if you don't do it correctly and that's not to scare off people i see that as an exciting part of using them um, understanding them and how to get the best performance um, out of them but you are dealing with living organisms on the whole and so an understanding of how to get them to work best yeah An advantage and a disadvantage. And
0: one of the the other questions that came in was about using biological controls as a preventative measure. And we've kind of touched on this with spider mites already, but I'd always assumed that really it's not worth getting them unless you've got the problem. As in, if you go and buy a load of mites or whatever nematodes and there's nothing for them to eat because you're kind of pre-empting a situation then you're just
1: wasting your money but is that wrong it depends across the spectrum of products really so yes nematodes will not survive if there's nothing for them to eat they um they're, they're not very also the nematodes aren't the, a super swimmer great fast creature they're quite lazy so you tend to have to apply them where the pest is they're not going to go in search of it um But the the slow-release products, so the the slow-release product for spider mite, the slow-release product for thrips, they both are supplied in a sachet that has grain mites in there. So they've got some food inside the sachet and they call out over a period of time. And as I said, with their... Um, spider mite product, they will feed on other things. On the whole, you're looking to, to, I think if you want to get your money's worth, you're yeah, right. You, you want to introduce those products once you've got something for them to eat. Their prey is present and. I think if you know your plants and you know the problems that you've had the previous year, I always say to people, it's almost poss- It's almost a good idea to keep a pest diary so that from year to year, you know when certain things started to appear and you get your um, predators in either as soon as the first signs of problems are there or just before. If you know every year you get spider mite on your um, particular plant when the sun starts shining through that window, then get it in early, get it nipped in the bud.
0: I've got a tenanthi, a member of the maranta family, which is just always got a bit of spider mite on it. And for that reason, I keep it on its own. But I'm wondering if I wanted to use a biological control on that, whether there would be enough on the plant for the biological control to be effective or do i need a whole sort of mini jungle of uh, foliage house plants for the mites to snack on or is one plant enough
1: one plant's enough on on most suppliers websites there'll be information about how much you need per Square meter or per plant so it's quite easy to work out how much you need with the nematode products It's a bit tricky because they they come in very specific sizes um and that's due to the, due to the way that they're produced. But for something like the andersoni, you can order as as few as five sachets and for one plant, you might just put one sachet on there um and then put the other ones on plants that are susceptible to spider mite and change it every every six weeks or every eight weeks if you really don't think there's much of a problem. But you might really, with that, want to just use something like an horticultural soap every fortnight. If it gets a bit worse, every week, a couple of times a week to keep the spider-mite under control. That might be a much more effective way for you to do that.
0: And Andy, somebody wanted to know about how we get these biological controls in the first place. I can't imagine what the what the what the factory looks like where you produce nematodes. Can you give us an insight into how how these biological controls are mass produced for the market?
2: There's not a lot of knowledge out there because it's something that is so alien to people, but there's an incredible amount of research that goes into developing these technologies. And, and we talked earlier about the Steinernema feltiae for controlling scarab That's been around for 30 years. Um, And it's probably the first true example of successful biological control, certainly here in the UK on a commercial scale. But the level of technology that goes into manufacturing these living organisms is incredible. The nematodes, for example, they're made, if you can call it that, bread, I guess would be a better word, in um, stainless steel fermenters, some of them three stories high. Massive vessels, like a, a beer brewing fermenter or a a wine fermenter Um, and then yeah getting the conditions just right inside that fermenter to effectively create the environment they reproduce in within an insect and then getting them out of the fermenter and separating them and making a pure product and then putting them in a formulation that they're happy to live in until the customer gets them Um, yeah there's an incredible amount of technology and history and research money that's gone into these
0: well i wasn't expecting you to describe a three stories high (laughs) metal fermenting tube (laughs) describing how, how these things come about that's amazing because and when you get them i mean i i Well, the first time I used a biological control was many years ago now, but it was probably whichever the nematode that's used for slugs, I would imagine. But I remember getting it, the pack, and having to put it in the fridge and having to put a big sign on it so my husband didn't try and put it on toast or anything. And um, getting it out, and it looks like a sort of um, powdery powdery brown sort of powdery semi-sticky stuff which you then gotta dilute in water and I think that sort of blew my mind because I'm thinking I can't see what I'm dealing with here which is kind of slightly disturbing. I wonder if that's why when you're talking about people's concept sort of ideas about what biological control is, they want to think about a ladybird because we all know what a ladybird looks like and what it is it's quite hard to sort of think about a nematode in a useful way when you've never actually seen what they look like and and you get this brown powder and it's all very mysterious. But I guess that's why you have to follow the instructions very closely. One of the things that people are really concerned about, Andy, is biological controls gone mad. I think they're worried that they're going to break out of our homes and do something terrible in the environment. Or indeed, one listener was very worried about Um, lace wings getting in her hair can you offer some reassurance here i would presume after many decades of using nematodes and so on that we've got a good handle on the fact they're not gonna break out and cause any damage to the native environment or are there any ones that we are concerned about for that reason
2: very much so it's um as well as the amount of research that goes into them these products are um heavily regulated uh um, and rightly so for any product that's that's used to control a, a pest. Are they going to cause problems outside in the environment? Um, no, is the answer. Product registration varies from country to country. Here in the UK, the products are regulated, and part of what a manufacturer has to do is to ensure that the product isn't going to cause any problems to the wider environment once it is released. As for the uh, getting into your listeners' hair. I'm, I have less and less hair as the years go by. I don't see it as a problem for me, but maybe people with more hair uh, do see it as more of a concern. If it did get in your hair, it's not going to do any harm to you. Um, I imagine the lacewing being about a centimetre and a half wide is probably more scared of you than you are of it.
0: I love lacewings. I think they're gorgeous. But, um, I mean, I know not everyone's keen on, on flying things.
1: Yeah, also, um, wing are predominantly looking after aphids for you so there's not an awful lot of aphids in people's house plants I get a lot of people buying lacewing because they're beautiful and they want them to do all the good things in their house when actually they're, they're more of a product that we tend to recommend for outdoors in the summer and also the fact that them reproducing in your house and getting out of control they'll only really reproduce in the perfect conditions and with the right amount of prey um so it depends if you've how much pest you've got really
0: Thanks so much to Tessa and Andy. And my interview with them will be continuing in next week's show. In the meantime, do check out the show notes at JanePerone.com for links to both Andermat UK and Ladybird Plant Care. More information about the biological controls we've talked about today and lots of resources for you to check out. And it's now time for question of the week, which comes from Jane. Great name, Jane. I've never met a bad Jane. Jane is a new listener to the show, having binged through the episodes over the last few months, and has a prickly pear cactus from her husband, which came as a birthday present. But unfortunately, it arrived looking droopy and sad looking. Now, this is interesting. Jane has handily attached some pictures to her email, and I can see that the specimen in question looks like it's Opuntia monocantha, which has the common name of the drooping Opuntia. So, yeah, maybe we're on to something here. When the plant arrived, she gave it a good soak and trimmed off a mushy leaf and the soil was dusty dry at the time. After the drink, the top leaf is still very soft, but the bottom two have firmed up and Jane is using wooden kebab sticks to prop it up. But she's wondering what else she can do to help it thrive. So Opuntia monocantha. Well, I mean, as the common name suggests, this, this particular prickly pear is particularly prone to drooping. And if you've got a prickly pear that has drooped over the wintertime, The main thing you need to establish is the cause of the drooping because it could be the plant is short of water or it could be that the plant is rotting. So how have you been treating your prickly pear over the winter? Check that potting mix. Is it dry and hard and completely dried up or is it moist and gooey? that will give you a good guide as to whether your plant has had too much water or too little. Now, if it, if it's had too much water, it's a dire state of affairs. There's probably not that much you can do to save it if it's already gone very soft and droopy. If on the other hand, the potting mix is dead dry and just the plants lacking water, it's a lot easier to deal with. And in fact, I'm sitting here and to my left, there is my very own Apuntia monocanther and I'm looking at it. I'm just going to give it a little bit of a be careful because it's quite spiny. Um, Yeah, that's pretty droopy. So it's it's about I'd say it's about 50 centimetres tall. And the top 10 centimetres is drooping. But I'm not too worried. The reason why I'm not too worried is because this plant will revive quite nicely once it has uh, some more water come, well, I'll probably start properly watering it in the next month or so. Over the winter time in the office here, about 15 to 18 degrees centigrade. That is, let me look at my little guide. What's that in Fahrenheit? It's about 63, 62 Fahrenheit or so, 61 at a push. Uh Out here, it does get a bit of water during the winter, but it stays very much on the dry side and therefore it does droop if I start watering that and give it a good soak, it will perk up very quickly. And it's interesting because I also have my Apuntia micro daisies, the one with the lovely velvety pads covered with yellow glochids, those tiny spines. That did droop, but when I watered that, uh, it perked up completely and that's completely upright. So it just shows you that Apuntia monocantha is particularly prone to drooping. So basically, the message is don't worry too much. Uh, What's happening on a cell level here is that in each cell of a plant, there is a thing called the vacuole, which is basically a big old bag of liquid. And when the vacuole is full of water, the cell is turgid. It's firm and steady. And therefore, the whole plant, the vacuole is pressing against the cell wall and making everything stand upright. When the vacuole isn't full of water... it sort of collapses in a bit that means the plant isn't turgid those cells aren't turgid and as a result the plant droops over but as soon as the plant is watered and can get a good supply of water to those vacuoles it will re-inflate itself a bit like a balloon and be absolutely fine It's much more of a concern, as I say, if it's wilting because of rot, because that means the roots are rotted and you may have to start again. I would try and rescue any firm pads and cut away everything else if you've got rotting roots and start that as a new cutting. But that's not the case here. Jane, you just need to worry about getting your cactus through the next few weeks and then it will perk up and you know once you're into April and if it's getting good sunlight you can start watering that cactus every week provided that you've got a good potting mix there which will let the water drain away quickly. So in addition to having a look at the plant and how it's doing. Uh, if you haven't, if, you, if it's a new plant and you've only just got it, do have a look at what it's potted into and consider changing that potting mix if you think it's going to hold on to too much water and prevent you from watering it regularly during the growing season. Now monocanther is native to South America, although it has become naturalized in places like South Africa and Australia and is in fact an invasive weed in some parts of the world. So so if you live in a part of the world where this one's naturalized, it is worth taking care not to let this loose in your garden. But if you're growing this as a house plant uh, in the UK, as I am, then that is absolutely fine. And the particular cultivar of Apuntia monocantha that seems to be the very much the most popular is the monstrous variegated form. So monstrous, what does that mean? Well, it just means that it's kind of twisted and elongated, basically showing etiolation, even when the sunlight isn't lacking. And the variegation, how does that show up? Well, on, on Apuntia monocantha, it's quite subtle. There's sort of silvery areas randomly speckled across the surface of the pads, which, as I say, are stretched and elongated in a way, which if you look at the parent species of Apuntia monocantha is just completely different. And this, if you're getting an Apuntia monocantha from a shop, this is probably the form you're going to get. And the reason why it's popular is because it is much more compact than the parent species. You might get, I mean, my, I say mine's pr- pretty big. It's about 50 centimetres tall. Then it might get to a metre, but the species would get to about six meters in the wild so it's a much smaller form much easier to handle in a domestic situation and if you want to propagate this plant if you're worried that your plant is not doing well or you just want to make new plants it is very easy you can just take one of those pads twist it off very carefully and leave it on the side for a couple of days let that cut callus over pop it on the surface of some very gritty potting mix just allow that cut to be slightly buried and you'll find that that will root beautifully and you can make new plants. Now opentias generally are a bit lethal as I've already said on the Microdaisies species you get these glockids which stick in your fingers and the monocanther well it doesn't have a huge amount of spines but it does have some And they are a little bit sharp, to say the least. But if you're looking for an Opuntia that won't do you any harm, I've recently seen a cultivar of Opuntia microdaisies called caress. And you can guess from the name what that means. There are no glochids or spines on that one. So do look out for Opuntia microdaisies Caress. I like saying that. Caress. If you want a plant that uh, it won't do any harm or if you've got a small child who's into cacti and succulents and wants one of these but you're worried about them getting stabbed. Speaking of children, it's time for Meet the Listener and this week I was absolutely blown away to hear from a young houseplant enthusiast called Susie. Listen to this.
3: I'm Susie, and I'm seven years old. I got into houseplants last year and during the first lockdown, and I really love them. It's my birthday soon, and hopefully I will get some new plants. And I just learned how to say plants in Latin, which is planter.
0: You've been selected to travel to Mars as part of the first human colony on the Red Planet. There's only room for one houseplant from your collection on board. Which plant do you choose?
3: I would really like to take my money tree to Mars because... Um, It's really easy to care for and I think it could survive a um, a little while on Mars without oxygen. And also I spent a whole £59.99 on it with my own money and it's been really happy and even pushed out some new growth for me um, a few times. So I would definitely choose my money tree, Akira Aquatica, because there's lots of other common names called money tree
0: question two
3: what is your
0: favorite episode of on the ledge
3: my favorite episode of on the ledge is definitely the episode when you interview maria faella because that's a quite a funny episode in my opinion um, and i just really like that episode I listen to it almost every night and I just really like the episode
0: Question 3
3: Which Latin name do you say to impress people? I definitely like to say Lactophora tetrasperma because it's a long name and it sounds like a tongue twister to lots of non-plant people um, because I, I really like that plant and I'm hoping for one for my birthday Question 4 Crassulation acid metabolism or guttation? Um, I definitely prefer Gattation to CAM because um, I can actually physically see Gattation happening all around me on my plants Um, CAM is really cool, there's lots of plants I've adapted to but I think I like Gattation slightly more because I can see it and also it looks like a crystal hanging off of my plant's leaves Question 5 would you rather spend
0: £200 on a variegated monstera or £200 on 20 interesting
3: cacti? Um, I would definitely choose the cacti because as much as I like monsteraes, um, I don't even know if my mum would spend that much money on just one plant. Um, so I think she would just about be able to spend it on 20 cacti. Um, because I love cacti um, even though I really like um, monsteras even our first one that we tried didn't go too well even though it's so beautiful I would definitely choose the more plants rather than just one beautiful one
0: Thanks to Susie's mum for helping her take part and to Susie Kid, you are going to go far that was amazing. There are lots of adults who wouldn't have had the confidence to do what you've just done. So well done to you. And wow, it was kind of a little bit like listening to myself as a child, except Susie was way more clued up than I was at that age. And if you want to take part in Meet the Listener, age, location, and background are immaterial. Just drop a line to on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. That's all for this week's show. I'll be back next Friday for more Planty Pest Control.
3: Bye, Spy, longing for love once more.
0: The music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, an instrument the boy called Happy Day Kakana by Samuel Corwin, and Lonely Spider by Colour. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit Jane Perone for details.
3: Forward,